Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. I'm Ben Jackson, in for Alyssa Milano. The Republican Party is in chaos. The far-right GOP in the House of Representatives is at the mercy of the extreme-right GOP in the House. Matt Gates and a handful of GOP extremists ousted Speaker Kevin McCarthy, and they hold the entire government hostage. It doesn't have to be this way. Over the years, we've had a number of Democratic members of the House on this show. Today, we'll revisit just a few of those interviews and show the possibility of what could be if we oust the chaos makers in the GOP and elect a competent Democratic majority with vision and commitment. Kevin McCarthy has been elected Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives amid heated exchanges which almost saw fellow Republicans come to blows. It took four days, 15 votes and numerous concessions. With the government shutdown averted for now, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is facing a new challenge tonight. I do intend to file a motion to vacate against Speaker McCarthy this week. Florida Congressman Matt Gates threatening to trigger a vote to remove McCarthy. For the first time in the history of American democracy and the first Congress of 1789, the Speaker of the House has been removed from his position as the leader of the chamber. By a vote of 216 to 210, lawmakers booted Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Daniel Ziblatt, co-author of the new book, tyranny of the minority, told the Washington Post, quote, if you want to know what it looks like when democracy is in trouble, this is what it looks like. It should set off alarm bells that something is not right. Hi, I'm Veronica Escobar, and if I need to get arrested to protect your rights, I will do it. Sorry, not sorry. We live in a country where guns have more rights than women. It's terrifying. You've been on the front line. You were recently arrested protesting for abortion rights in front of the Supreme Court. Tell us why this is so important to you. What we have been seeing, and it's gun violence prevention and our right to safety. It's our right to health care and abortion. It's our right to vote. It's our right to marry whoever we love. 
what we are seeing right now, and I've been trying to be really consistent in my public statements, we have been witnessing the Republicans telling us what their dark vision for America is. And it is essentially, I boil it down to this. They want to create a country with a group of second-class citizens where you and I, because we are women, we don't have full civil rights, access to civil rights. We don't have the right to determine our future by determining our body and our reproductive freedom. Where as, a, as parents, we don't have the right to safety and security for our children. Whereas voters, especially voters of color, we don't have the right to access at the ballot box. Where if you're gay or where if you're in an interracial marriage, you don't have the right to marry the person you love. We know that's the direction they want to move the country in. And so it is on us, on all of us. This midterm is going to be a real test for American women, for American families, for the LGBTQ community, for everyone who believes that we deserve our hard-earned rights. Yes, we've got to talk about inflation. Yes, we've got to talk about immigration. Yes, there's a million challenges that we face in our nation. But if you're not willing to vote for your civil rights at the ballot box, nothing else is going to matter because you will be a second-class citizen. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I just interviewed Katie Watson, and she had such a great quote, which is, power doesn't go down without a fight. And I think if we look at this whole conservative movement, it really is power going down without a fight. They're trying to do everything they can to keep themselves in power, including stripping away our rights. So what can Congress do to protect, to protect all of this, but in particular, abortion rights on a national level? Well, we passed two great bills, two pieces of legislation the House of Representatives did. And I have to keep reminding the media because reporters will always say, but Congress hasn't done anything. And I always have to stop them and say, you're wrong. The House of Representatives, our Democratic majority, we have acted. We have acted to protect a woman's right to determine her future, have her reproductive freedom, and her right to abortion, her right to be able to have control over her own body. We've done that because we're Democrats and we have a large enough majority that we are able to do that. In Washington, the House of Representatives has just passed the Women's Health Protection Act. Now that bill is aimed at preserving access to abortion nationwide. The House passed the measure on a nearly party line vote, 218 to 211. But Texas Democrat Henry Coyar voided with Republicans. Uh, the bill now heads to the Senate.
The problem is the Senate. The Senate, obviously, because of the filibuster, which is such an anti-democratic relic. It's a relic of the past. It's a relic of oppression. But we need more Democrats in order not just to eradicate the filibuster and get work done in the Senate, but we need more Democrats, period. I mean, it's so frustrating, though. It's so frustrating because, and I get it, the president recently told us that if we want to protect abortion rights, we need to elect two more pro-choice senators. But there are two Democrats in the Senate who are more committed to the ridiculous Senate filibuster than they are to the American people. So I guess the question is, is the Democratic Party leadership in the Senate doing enough to bring those senators to heel? That's a great question. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know Chuck Schumer. I know that he's in consistent negotiations with those two, probably far more today than he was last year. I don't know the extent of those conversations or the kind of relationship that they have. It is incredibly frustrating. It feels like the country's held hostage by two Democrats. But I always try to remind folks do not let Republicans off the hook, especially those of us who are Democrats. We've got to remind the country, look, the big obstacles to getting anything done are the Republicans. And yes, we absolutely were frustrated with two Democrats in the Senate, but the Republicans are always united, always. And unless we unelect them, unless we fire them, unless we replace them with Democrats, then these razor thin margins will always be held hostage by someone who loves all the attention and power that comes with the leverage of being a badly needed vote. In the House, as diverse as we are, and we don't always have unity, but there are enough Democrats to be able to play with stuff so that we can actually move legislation. The Senate needs more breathing room, and that means more Democrats. And I know it's frustrating for Democratic voters, but when you look at what we have accomplished in totality in a very short period of time, yes, the challenges remain, but we've done some pretty amazing shit. We kept people in their homes during COVID. We kept small businesses afloat during COVID. We put money in people's pockets. We demonstrated that we can solve childhood poverty. We've demonstrated what we can do. There's a lot more we can, should, and need to do, but we need voters to help us. It's just got to be so frustrating for you to wake up every morning and to be able to pass legislation in the House on these important issues that just die in the Senate because of the filibuster. I can't imagine how like, you wake up in the morning and say, okay, I got to go fight this fight again. Right. This has been the most frustrating job I have ever had in my life. And I feel like there's this loud clock ticking on climate, on the economy, on poverty, on our democracy, on women's rights, you name it. Like I can hear the clock in my head and we're not moving fast enough. We're not making enough progress. And I try to use that anxiety to fuel my my work at home to register voters, to raise money, to get our message out, but we got to do it. And that's why at the very top of our conversation, I told you how grateful I am for your work because we need all of us who are in this fight. We need to nurture each other. 
and pull each other up and be cheerleaders for one another and protect each other. Hello, I'm Congresswoman Barbara Lee representing the 13th District of California. I'm fighting to cut the Pentagon budget and keep the U.S. out of endless wars. Sorry, not sorry. But what does it feel like to be a black leader, to be leading this charge basically for your entire life and a black woman who even in birth had to struggle because of systemic racism? What does it feel like to be in Congress under this man? It feels normal. It's another white supremacist platform. And so my skills of the past in terms of fighting racism and white supremacy, most Black people <laughs> keep those yeah. skills. You know, I like guess that's, a, that's a really good the point. The statutes in the Capitol. And so we keep our perspective. And yes, I may be a member of Congress and the highest ranking Black woman in the House of Representatives. Okay, I'm part of the leadership team and all, but I know the struggles of Black people and Brown people in this country because I've lived them. And so it's important that those experiences are reflected in what I do. And dealing with Donald Trump, that's just another white supremacist we got to get rid of and get him out of the White House. So what am I doing? I'm helping organize, making sure these elections aren't stolen, making sure we do the census. So everything is about this struggle we're in for justice and to make this a better country for all and Black Lives Matter. And so that's what I do. You don't get tired when you do this every day. You might get angry. You might get, I don't even say frustrated. Maybe people get frustrated who haven't been doing this and don't understand the nature of the beast. But I understand the nature of the beast. Well, so much of activism is about being okay to plant the seed and not see it come into fruition. You have to be okay to plant the tree but never know how tall it's going to get. Yeah. And your fight continues. You are trying to enact a Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Commission. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure, Lisa. First, this is a marathon we're in for justice. And remember, 401 years ago, my ancestors were enslaved. So we have to run each lap of this race and take that baton and keep going. So it's important now that we support reparations, H.R. 40, because now's the time to repair the damage. And also my bill, H.R. 100, which sets up a truth, racial healing and transformation commission. So the healing work is the process of peeling back those layers of denial and coming face to face with our true humanity, coming face to face with our innate capacity to love one another truly as human beings. Love has to be at the core of what we do is love for country, love for community, love for family, and above all, love for in the belief of what we can do together. Over 40 countries have done this after horrific genocides, crimes against humanity, brutalities against minority people. United States has never done it. It's a day of reckoning, and we have to tell the truth about the context about systemic racism. A lot of progressive whites don't understand when they saw black people and brown people dying disproportionately from COVID. They call me up and ask me, what is this? I said, wait a minute, you don't connect that to 401 years ago and these chains haven't all been broken? 
Don't That's you understand right. their disparities and racism in the healthcare system where people of color, especially black people, don't get the kind of adequate health care they need? Or they live in a food desert where they can't get fresh produce or any healthy foods or their water is contaminated with lead, the environmental injustices. It doesn't stop. And I keep thinking and having this conversation with my husband about like, where would we be if it wasn't for cell phone videos? White people still wouldn't believe it because they can see it now with their own eyes. There is this awakening they can't turn away, and it scares the shit out of them because I really believe that white people benefit from their privilege. And so we all have to figure out how to support this movement in a way that this never never goes back to the way it was. It cannot go back. But let me tell you, Lisa, exactly what you just said is why we decided, I've been working on HR 100, my Truth and Racial Healing and Transformation Commission for three years. It was time to introduce it now within this context because now the stories have to be told. The day of reckoning has to come. We have to lay out how slavery has impacted generations of people with regard to the wage gap, the wealth gap, the environmental injustice, the lead in water. So I'm asking everyone, get to the members of Congress to sign on to H.R. 100 and H.R. 40, because we got to get to 218 to get these out of the House of Representatives. And what can people at home do to help to support with H.R. 40 and H.R. 100? Email, call, or tell their members of Congress to sign on because we're at about 140 co-sponsors within a couple of months. And John Lewis, when we introduced it, he signed on early and issued a very heavy-duty, profound statement in support of H.R. 100. And he was the sponsor of H.R. 40. So the big thing that people can do now is call your members of Congress, email them, text them, and tell them to get on to H.R. 100 and to H.R. 40. That's extremely critical. It's the power of the people, Elisa, and I'm telling you, people don't realize how powerful they are. Hi, I'm Congressman Adam Schiff, and I'm fighting to protect our democracy from Trump Republicans. Sorry, not sorry. I want to know what it was like growing up in a bipartisan house. How did that influence the way you approach your work? It must have. It it did. It did. My mother uh, was from a long line of Republicans. I have a wonderful photograph on my wall that's also in the book of my mother's father, Harry Glovsky, who was a Eisenhower delegate. And he's standing with Eisenhower and Henry Cabot Lodge. Uh, He was uh, an example of what we used to call Rockefeller Republican, fiscally conservative, socially very progressive. That part of the Republican Party doesn't exist anymore. Even the conservative wing of the Republican Party doesn't exist anymore. It's it's become this anti-truth autocratic cult around the former president. But back in the day, it was a very different party. And my mother came from a long line of Republicans. My father, on the other hand, came from a long line of Democrats, New Deal, Roosevelt Democrats. And it was never contentious in our home. I think my folks raised my brother and myself to believe that neither party had a monopoly on good judgment all the time and that we needed to treat the views of others with respect. But I suspect if my mother were alive today, she passed away about 10 years ago, she wouldn't recognize the Republican Party. Indeed, during her lifetime, she saw it move farther and farther away from the party of her parents' roots and I think long since ceased to vote Republican. But I think would find it unrecognizable today. What do you think needs to happen to get back to that? I think that the Republican Party, we really need at least two parties 
functional parties uh, in this country, and right now we only have one, the Republican Party needs to return to its roots, to being a party of an ideology. But how do we get there? It feels like that's never going to happen, in my lifetime at least. Or do you have faith that we'll get back to that place? I do have faith in that. I think that I would like to believe that Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger represent the future of the Republican Party. The question is, is that a near future or is that a long distant future? And it's not really going to be up to us to make that determination. What we can do, frankly, to help that along is just to make sure that we dominate the elections, that we repudiate, we turn out our numbers, we repudiate Donald Trump and Trumpism. The only thing that would cause the Republican Party to cease being a cult of the former president is to decide it's a losing strategy politically. And so we need to make a losing strategy by making sure that we register our people, that we turn out our people, that we pass HR1 and voting rights uh, legislation. If we do our jobs, we can help speed the collapse of this cult around Donald Trump. So a decade after you took office, there's a story where you were on a plane with Kevin McCarthy, who is now the Republican leader in the House. Can you tell my listeners about that experience? Yes, and I, I included this in the book because I'm so often asked the question, do the Republicans really believe what they're saying? What do they tell you when they're in private? And this story it tells a lot about what Republicans say in private and in the public, but also sheds light on, on Kevin McCarthy's character or lack of character and make himself the speaker. People need to know just what a terrible danger that would be for the country. So I'm flying back to Washington. The year is 2010. I'm seated just coincidentally next to Kevin McCarthy. I really had never had a conversation with him before because his district was far from mine. We weren't on the same committees. And we're having the kind of nothing of a conversation that you have uh, before the movie starts, any movie. And our conversation was about who was going to win the midterms, which were then six months away. And Congress uh, then, like now, was very evenly divided. And I said that Democrats were going to win the midterms. And he said he thought Republicans were going to win the midterms. And it was really a nothing of a conversation. And I thought nothing of it until we got to D.C. and we went our separate ways. And unbeknownst to me, he went off to do a briefing for the press. And he told the press, Republicans are going to win the midterms, he said. Everybody knows it. I sat next to Adam Schiff on the plane on the way back from L.A. And even he admitted that Republicans were going to win the midterms. And I, this didn't come out until the morning that he had told the press this. And I was just apoplectic. And I rushed up to him on the House floor. And I said, Kevin, first of all, for having a private conversation on the plane, I would have thought it was a private conversation, but if it wasn't, you know, you told the press the exact opposite of what I said. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, I know, Adam, but you know how it goes. And I said, no, Kevin, I don't, I don't know how it goes. You just make shit up and that's how you operate because that's not how I operate. But that is how he operates. And in that respect, he was really made for a time like this when the leader of his party cares nothing about the truth, uh, lies constantly, and you do anything, you say anything to take power, and that's who Kevin McCarthy is. I'm Ro Khanna. I'm fighting for universal childcare at $10 a day, like in Canada and so many other Western democracies. Sorry, not sorry. Tell us what it was like serving in the House when there was a united democratic control of Congress. It was the best moment of my public service career. I was in the Obama administration. I've now been in Congress seven years. I would say those two years were extraordinary. We got so much done. 
we passed the biggest climate change bill ever with the Inflation Reduction Act, and we're seeing battery plants, solar plants come up all over America because of that. We passed the CHIPS Act that I helped write, bringing semiconductor manufacturing back here. We passed the American Rescue Plan that put money in the pockets of working class Americans, of low wealth Americans that made such a difference for their ability to pay the bills, to help with child poverty, to have economic opportunity, and that grew the economy from the bottom up. We passed an infrastructure bill that helped rebuild America. So it was a moment where you felt you were doing things which makes public service worthwhile. And then you cut to, to use a term from my industry, you cut to watching the parade of failed votes for McCarthy as speaker and how he had to, in order to win the job, mortgage a house to a handful of the most extreme members of his party. Kevin McCarthy walks off the floor. No, he's, he's talking. Or he's, I'm sorry, he walks up the floor, rather. Matt Gates. he needed him to vote yes, not present. He's trying to convince him. He appears to be trying to convince Matt, Matt Gates to vote yes and not present. Or Boebert. Also, right, he, or, if he could get Lauren Boebert to change yep. from present. Or, yes, or convince. We haven't seen him doing this personally on the floor. He's obviously been doing it behind closed doors. But until this moment, we have seen his deputies do this. This is, this is it. I mean, this is do or die for him. How has that changed the way the House works? And what does it say about McCarthy, about the GOP, about our government in general, and about democracy? Well, it's changed the House, not just for the fact that we're no longer tackling climate, we're no longer helping working-class Americans, we're no longer building infrastructure. It's also changed the fact that we're basically distracted by issues that the American people don't really care about. We're talking about what books people should be reading in the service academies. And then you look at the polling and cadets and people coming into West Point, the Air Force Academy, the wokeness is ninth on the list of what they care about. They care about a lot of other things beyond that. So we are caught up in these manufactured culture wars that ordinary Americans aren't talking about, policing the type of diversity training, policing the type of curriculum or books. And we aren't focused on improving people's economic condition, getting them health care, getting them child care, building our manufacturing base, the, the things that really matter. Hello, everyone, and thank you for being here for this special live edition of Sorry Not Sorry. Why is it so important for the Democrats to turn out? Um, and then uh, John actually wants to know about your position on the law in Georgia that prohibits giving water to people in line at the polls. I mean, are we kidding at this point with this? Yeah, I mean, our legislators came up with this fiendish idea to um, to really uh, torture 
voters standing in line in the hot Georgia summer uh, in the heat uh, at a precinct where there are not enough voting machines or at a precinct that's been consolidated with two or three other precincts. And so you have so many voters going to one precinct, the lines are long and uh, in its infinite wisdom, the Georgia legislature passed a law and governor, shotgun governor Kemp signed it into law that would ban the provision of food and water uh, by anybody other than a poll worker uh, to people standing in line waiting to vote. And so trying to make it difficult to vote in person while they're also putting up other barriers to make it difficult for you to vote by mail. And so it's just a naked uh, attempt to suppress votes. That's what it is. Uh, I, I uh, condemn uh those actions, those that legislation. And uh, but it is the law at this time has not been overturned by the courts. They are the courts. The, these are measures that have been challenged in court. And, uh, and of course, we're dealing with a situation where our courts have been captured at the very top. And Donald Trump appointed a lot of um, right wing ideologues to the federal trial court bench and to the uh, court of appeals throughout the country, the courts of appeals throughout the country. But fortunately, Joe Biden has has been uh, single-mindedly pushing through nominations to the court on both district court and court of appeals levels, and uh, things are evening up. And so We've got a lot of these voting rights cases that are coming through the, the courts right now. The ultimate outcome remains to be seen. I'm always one that keeps a um, optimistic view. Some justices that are appointed like Justice Souter, he was appointed by a uh, Republican president because he was a conservative, but he turned out to, to be uh, more of a moderate. And so these things can happen uh, to judges uh, as they move forward. And so I don't count anybody out. I don't give up on anybody or anything happening. Uh, so good things can come out of bad things. Uh, uh, but um, yeah, we, we have a lot of obstacles out here uh, in, in terms of uh, voter suppression. And I've and tell me I, I've, I've left out uh, an a response to uh, I haven't answered your full question yet, Alyssa. Well, the, just what's at stake? Yeah, it's I mean the courts right. is one thing that's at stake because United States senators confirm uh, federal court judges to the bench, and so if 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 all of your if your legislature, if your Senate is controlled by Mitch McConnell, then you get Trump judges and justices. Uh, although Justice Roberts says that there are no Obama judges, there are no Trump judges, they're just judges. But mm -hmm. that's, I wish that that were true, mm -hmm. but that's not uh, the case, unfortunately. And we're trying to bring it back to that. So courts is one thing, legislation uh, that, uh, uh, impinges on a woman's right to uh, over her own body. 
the rights of uh, LGBTQ people. Uh, I mean, right now we've got folks passing bathroom bills and they're passing legislation that prohibits the um, uh, trans uh, youth from playing in sports. They are um, even banning books. And pretty soon, Alyssa, you know, they'll be banning films. And if we let this continue, and so there's a lot at stake. Our economic, uh, our our ability to be equal um, uh, uh, participants in our in our uh, economy, whether or not we're going to have everything shifted to uh, benefit corporations and wealthy individuals, as opposed to working men and women and uh, people who are aspiring to get into the middle class, all of the rules, the laws uh, are set by the legislative branch and carried out by the executives, the governors, the president, uh, the county chair, the mayor, all of those races are so important. The county commission, the city council, the United States Congress, House and Senate, the uh, state secretaries, Senate, secretaries state, of state, Secretary of state that does the uh, that uh, presides over the voting apparatus. Uh, everything is so important. We need to vote every time and be uh, cognizable, cognizant of who we are voting for, knowing who votes or who acts against our interests. Mm -hmm. And as a good rule of thumb these days, you can bet that if you vote Republican, you're voting for right-wing judges and, uh, and for corporate interests and for interests that want to do away with uh, uh, people's ability to control their own bodies. Um, and um, you're voting for those interests. And if you vote Democratic, you're voting for folks who are looking out for your personal liberty and also your economic well-being. Uh, working people do better when Democrats are in office. Mm -hmm. uh, when Republicans are in office, the wealthy and big business do better. That's how they got a $5.8 trillion tax cut back in 2017, 83% of which went to the top 1%. And uh, by contrast, they, Republicans vote against the uh, infrastructure bill, $1.1 trillion. They voted against the American Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion. Those things have helped the American people through uh, the uh, pandemic. And it's helping to uh, create good paying jobs for people. Uh, but Republicans vote against that. And they would not hesitate to take away more taxes uh, or, or cut taxes for the wealthy. They wouldn't hesitate to do that again. Their goal is to have a, a small federal government that does not watch out for uh, the people. The world is just too dangerous a place to leave our government in the hands of Matt Gates and his ilk. We're destroying our standing in the world and severely damaging our ability to function here at home. The business of governing is too important to allow extremists to take control of the process. There is an alternative. You've just heard some of it today. Now we've barely a year left until the next election, so it's time to go to work. 
Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry. <laughs>